New Zealand has long been considered a leading player in Antarctica, but as countries with multi-million dollar budgets set up base and rich oil and mineral resources are identified, this Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks, can New Zealand maintain its position? It was five years as Prime Minister before John Key made his first trip to Antarctica earlier this year. It was billed as a trip to check in on work by New Zealand scientists and also to bolster relations with the Americans after a fraught year of disagreements over protection for the Ross Sea. But many saw the trip as a reminder to other countries of New Zealand's strong presence on the ice and John Key did nothing to silence those thoughts. We have total commitment to um, our presence in Antarctica. Uh, it's um, been a program we've been involved in for well over 50 years. And I mean, the way I see it, we have both um, rights in Antarctica, we have responsibilities, and we have research that we undertake here. All three of those are very important to us. Uh, you know, I think it's quite clear there are other players who are coming into Antarctica and having a presence here. But from New Zealand's point of view, we are um, a very important player here. I'm Olivia Wicks and earlier this year I travelled to Antarctica to find out if New Zealand is still a major player on the southern ice. The first thing you notice when you get to Antarctica is that the pictures and videos you've seen of this magnificent place of your life just really can't do it justice. It starts when you're flying into Antarctica and you fly over the Ross Sea, this bright, beautiful cobalt blue ocean speckled with these big hunks of white ice that almost look as though someone's come and smashed millions and millions of dinner plates all over the ocean. And then when you land, you step off the Hercules and you're surrounded by these mountain ranges everywhere you look, some of them salt and peppery coloured, others so white and so far away way that you almost can't tell if they're mountains and the ice sheets itself they just go on forever this bright sparkly white color that makes it appear translucent in the sun i guess what's really special about this wonderful place is that no one owns this place it's it's for everyone in the world and that access is because of the Antarctic Treaty. Drawn up in 1959 with 12 member countries, the treaty promotes Antarctica as a peaceful place for scientific research. 50 countries are now signatories and 28 have a say in day-to-day -day governance issues. New Zealand and six other countries claim ownership over parts of Antarctica, but under the treaty the claims aren't recognised. But that doesn't stop some countries from waving their claim in the face of others. In January, a pau whenua, or wooden pole, was unveiled at New Zealand's home on the ice, Scott Base. Traditionally, a pau is used to stake claim to a place. The Prime Minister, John Key, said that wasn't the purpose in this case. No, I don't think it's an alternative motive, uh, but it is a, a, it's part of who New Zealand uh, is and how we see ourselves. It's, um, it's, you know, it's our culture, and to have uh, that symbol here on Scott Base I think is very important. The chair of the Crown entity, Antarctica New Zealand, Rob Fennick, also said the traditional meaning of a po didn't apply in this situation. In many ways, Scott Base is like a New Zealand embassy. It is a place where New Zealand tries to represent itself. 
um, in all its dimensions. It's just this is who we are, this is how we represent ourselves. Uh, now, I don't think any of that um, sort of sovereignty stuff was ever entered our heads. So it doesn't hurt if another country looks up the meaning and, and sees what the, the meaning of a pofenua is? No, I, um, I just as the, you know, the po in London, I don't think offends the, the, the British government. It's a very appropriate way that we express the fact that we are a uh, bicultural nation. I don't think there was any sort of conspiracy behind, uh, behind that or any hidden agenda. But others aren't so sure. Dr Anne-Marie Brady is a political scientist at Canterbury University and a polar expert who has written a book on Antarctic sovereignty. She believes the placing of the PO was very intentional. It's all part of New Zealand or trying to demonstrate that we have connections in Antarctica. And so, you know, we have more right to speak than other countries do. We have more authority on Antarctic affairs than other countries do. But, but lots of countries make those gestures in multiple ways. China's doing their own versions, you know, Chile's doing another version. It, it, countries do that in Antarctica. Symbolic gestures are a part of the territory. An international lawyer specialising in polar regions, Professor Karen Scott, who is also based at Canterbury University, wasn't surprised by the placing of the Po. So there's undoubtedly a, a bit of a change in the dynamics and um, what that means is, is that potentially those states are, are likely to want a much greater voice uh, within the Antarctic Treaty System. So that does mean that the more traditional Antarctic states, including New Zealand, their uh, natural influence has diminished and will be diminishing. China, Korea, Russia and India have all shown a renewed interest in Antarctica over the past decade, quadrupling their budgets and setting up as many as three bases each across the continent. Dr Brady says there is no denying that all the nations are seeking to boost their position. China is um, looking to strengthen its presence in Antarctica and its scientific research in order to have what they call the right to speak, in Chinese, huayutrian. If we could translate again into um, authority, to have more authority in Antarctic affairs. So we can expect countries like China, Korea, India, who are stepping up their investment, will want increasingly to have more authority in decision-making. You will get some different perspectives coming forward. Dr Brady believes there is another reason for the renewed interest. The continent is thought to have the world's third largest oil and gas reserves, large coal seams and manganese, iron and uranium deposits. At the moment, a part of the treaty called the Madrid Protocol allows countries to explore for minerals, but not to extract them. But the protocol comes up for renewal in 2048. Well, that's McMurdo Sound. You can see all the melt pools developing there. Across the sound is around about 40 miles, so you quadruple that and you'll arrive at the Italian station. The Korean station is, a, is about another um, 20 kilometres. Lou Sanson knows all too well where the bases are. As well as being the chief executive of Antarctica New Zealand for the past 11 years, he's travelled to the continent dozens of times. He says conversations with his counterparts from other countries, both on the ice and at the international meetings, make him confident the growing presence of other nations can only be a good thing. It enables some countries, like Korea, China... Russia to work across the continent so they can solve problems. We can only solve the problems that exist here in the Ross Sea. But the, the more bases they have, the better it's going to look if these claims ever come up again. Well, clearly, the basis of influence here is science. I think 
China has some unique problems. Uh, the Chinese said when the last time the Arctic ice melted as much as it did in 2007 coincided with some of the biggest blizzards they've ever seen in China. They are the country, probably one of the most countries most exposed to sea level rise. Those two issues have led to a huge growth in their polar programs. Do you believe extra bases equals extra power? Well, I think it's wonderful that the international community wants to join together and solve bigger and bigger science questions. And that's what you believe they're doing? And, well, that's what I hear at the treaty. Academics, environmental groups, they would say we're being naive. Academics would. I know a lot of these managers personally. They tell me what their aspirations are and I've got to believe them. While New Zealand officials like Lou Sanson say they can't see a day when extraction will occur, the actions of other countries suggest otherwise. A recent Australian report warned its government that its current Antarctic presence wasn't enough to protect its perceived rights as a claimant state. A Chinese government official told scholars in Beijing last year that its increased presence is to ensure China's polar interests are protected. Leaked Russian government documents reveal it believes it has a right to explore and potentially exploit resources. South Korea is widely considered to be promoting the resources by publishing maps of the whereabouts of oil and methane deposits in the Southern Ocean, showing just how large they are. But the Canterbury University academics are frustrated that New Zealand officials still refuse to acknowledge that mineral exploitation is the widely considered reason developing countries are wanting such a large presence on the ice. The chair of Antarctica New Zealand, Rob Fennick, is confident that's not the case. They're operating within the principles of the treaty. You know, for as long as they're not extracting minerals, um, they're not in breach. Is it sinister? I don't think so. I don't. It, it can't be until somebody gets out a spade and starts um, extracting the material for for gain, and then all hell will break loose. The Foreign Affairs Minister, Murray McCulley, is certain that day will never happen. If you want to be welcomed into the Antarctic Club, uh, you um, need to understand the ground rules, and the ground rules are that there is no exploration for minerals uh, in Antarctica. Uh, and uh, anyone who thinks that they can change that, I think, is going to find a very unreceptive uh, environment. But polar expert Dr Brady thinks that view amounts to sticking one's head in the sand. They are emerging economies with growing energy needs. 2048 is when the um, protocol can be raised. Like it, that's what the Australians always say, it can be, like it, like it, like it, it might not be. But I mean, what we know about peak oil and all the worries that everyone's been having about will there be enough oil for us to continue our our lifestyles. We can presume, I think, that some countries at least are going to want to debate the issue about should we look at exploiting mineral resources um, in the Antarctic. The international law expert Professor Karen Scott says New Zealand needs to plan for that day. So there's certainly a good number of years before we get to that stage. Um, but it would be sensible, I think, for New Zealand, and I'm sure it's already doing so, you know, to think about what its position is in relation to uh, resources, and particularly if it was keen to um, not allow the exploitation of resources and to begin to think about um, lobbying and putting in place uh, the requisite measures so that you know, when we actually get to 2048, nobody's taken by surprise. Anne-Marie Brady says if exploitation occurs the spoils won't be easy to divide. Do the claimant states have more rights or do countries who 
didn't make a claim but have been very active in Antarctica, do they have equal rights? How does that work out? Anyway, I greet you, I welcome you, and I really look forward to just seeing your happy faces when you leave and have a very wonderful time. It's a precious place to be. With more than 100 buildings, America's McMurdo Station resembles an old mining town, a port based right beside the base, and petrol smell all over the year. Up to 1,400 people live there in summer, 150 remain in winter. But without them, Scott Base would struggle to function. America supplies New Zealand with almost all of its aircraft and flying crews, as well as power and fuel. They maintain all the roads here in Antarctica, have a fire station, a doctor's clinic, and most importantly, bring all of the supplies, staff and visitors to the ice. Scientists, base staff and even government officials here aren't afraid to admit that our relationship with America is vital to New Zealand's future on the ice. The chair of Antarctica New Zealand, Rob Fennick, is one of them. There's a real sense of friendship with the US and I don't think that anything that happens will threaten that and in fact I would say that our collaboration is better now than it ever has been. The United States has uh, invested a great deal into the infrastructure that we rely on. How do we keep showing to them that we are equally as valuable. The innovation we came up with was to offer to build the wind farm. The three turbines were erected on a hill between Scott and McMurdo bases in 2010. New Zealand was behind the idea to install the turbines and is paying for them. But the head of America's Antarctic program, Kelly Faulkner, isn't keen on New Zealand getting all the kudos. This is a joint program, you realise. We've actually invested a whole lot in the engineering here as well, so it's, it's definitely joint. Rob Fennick wasn't impressed. There's no doubt who paid for that wind farm. It was, the, it was New Zealand, and it was New Zealand's technology that, uh, that inspired it and built it. Um, you know, naturally the two bases, McBurdo and Scott, work closely together in the way in which the, uh, the energy is delivered to both bases. And so, um, sure, the, um, the Americans are quite involved in that, but um, it's a Kiwi contribution, make no mistake about that. During his weekend on the ice, John Key met Dr Faulkner, toured McMurdo Station, met American scientists and hosted a dinner for them at Scott Base. He said that while New Zealand is trying to pull its weight and make the relationship as fair as possible, New Zealand could do more to improve relations. Well, I think it's fair to say we couldn't operate without the Americans. I mean, they uh, do a lot of the heavy lifting here in Antarctica. They, they dedicate enormous resources. We rely on them for logistics and movement very often. But I think what New Zealand can do is um, make sure that it p picks up its side of the deal uh, with things that are very useful. I mean, we are uh, processing waste now in New Zealand, uh, this wind farm technology. It's possible some of our flights from the Air Force or maybe even Air New Zealand uh, might be able to provide support. Uh, there's a lot of other options we've been talking through in a very practical sense, and all of that saves money. Kelly Faulkner says America is pleased New Zealand is committed to the partnership. Every 10, 15 years or so we take a really hard look at our program and try and figure out how we could do things differently and better going forward. And uh, the major study coming out of that has pointed to a number of possibilities that New Zealand stepped right up to the plate as soon as we got that report and said, how can we help? And we were talking through a number of things. It's a, there's a large array. So. How do you see the New Zealand-America relationship evolving here on the ice over the next few years, next decade? I suspect it'll be as robust as it's been for nearly 60 years and we look forward to all of that.
Science will be key to maintaining that relationship. The two countries are long-time allies when it comes to joint research. The Andrel project the two countries led is widely considered the most successful Antarctic research to date. After drilling through 1,200 metres of ice, seawater, sediment and rock in 2006 and 2007, scientists found material dating back 20 million years. Despite that success, the next phase of the project has been halted because of a lack of funding. Finding the money for research is a constant restraint on New Zealand's scientific projects. All grants have to come out of a $26 million budget, which also has to pay for the running of Scott Base and Antarctica New Zealand. That's frustrated the Antarctic marine geologist from Otago University, Professor Gary Wilson, for some time. We are in a situation where um, our funding system and the way scientists work is very competitive. Um, so competitive that um, we do amazing work on very small parts of the puzzle. And, and the, what's in front of us here and what the Institute's about is trying to bring some of that collaborative effort together with an appropriate level of funding to actually address some of these key uncertainties. But as a scientist, do you think the government understands what's really happening down here? Well, actually, to, to a good degree, no, because if they did, then we'd be doing things quite differently. And that indifference prompted the launch of the New Zealand Antarctic Research Institute last year. A $5 million private donation was the push that scientists needed to turn their institute dreams into a reality. Earlier this month, the institute met for the first time to discuss what the money could be used on. Nothing yet has been finalised. Gary Wilson is also the director of the new institute. He says the focus of it will be putting current knowledge to better use. Yes, we've got some great capacity, yes we've got some great researchers, yes we've made some key discoveries in understanding the place. But all that has put us in a position of, of being able to say now, well hang on a minute, this is what we potentially face and this is what we should be focusing our effort on and that's a whole step up and that's going to take extra funding and that's partly what Inzari is about. Are we going to lead in the future if everything stays as it is now? Yeah, I, I mean I, it's almost pointless answering the question because we can't afford to let it stay as it is now. The funding received by the Institute will be distributed by scientists for scientists. Niwa does an Antarctic trip about roughly every two to three years, so this will be her tenth, tenth Antarctic trip. An Antarctic oceanographer at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, Dr Mike Williams, has just returned from Antarctica on the research vessel Tangaroa. He's been frustrated by funding decisions for years and hopes the Institute can change that. New Zealand Antarctic science should play to its strengths, but, but also recognise that as people move out of doing Antarctic science, either through retirement or, or, or other interests taking it, that, that our niches may change. We can't we can't be stuck in a, in a science model from 20 years ago, um, but, but we, need to, we need to move to where the skills are and we need to allow young researchers to come in. We're, we're very good at training people to, to a PhD level and possibly a little bit longer, but then the, the mentorship and the funding tends to drop off in that period where they go from being a follower to, to being a leader and that's where we're not doing ourselves good service. 
Although Antarctic research is prestigious on the world stage, it's also important for understanding New Zealand's climate. Rob Fennick, who is also the chair of the Institute, says the new body will allow more of this science to happen. An independent organisation like this can really cut through a lot of that political, um, if you like, static and ask questions that are important. And for New Zealand, the question is how does this continent affect our economy? And our primary economy is totally dependent on the weather. We know that. I mean, a drought and a flood will have a devastating effect on our economy. And the weather for New Zealand is largely dependent on the systems of oceans and wind and atmosphere that drives off Antarctica. And it's changing, and if we don't understand the changes, we are putting our economy at risk. While America and New Zealand do share a close relationship on the ice, it went through a rocky patch last year over plans to create the world's largest marine protected area. The pair had agreed to create a joint proposal to protect the Ross Sea, but New Zealand changed its mind and both countries submitted separate plans. America's plan was largely conservation-focused. New Zealand's proposal safeguarded parts of the Ross Sea, but also ensured toothfish habitats weren't in the protected area. But within days of the international meeting known as CAMLA last year, member countries told New Zealand and America to sort their differences out and come back with a joint plan. They did, taking on parts of each other's proposal, but China, Russia and the Ukraine blocked it. Antarctica New Zealand admitted the issue had caused a niggle in the relationship, but Kelly Faulkner of America's Antarctic program refused to get drawn into the impact on the partnership. You know, we're very delighted that we were able to um, take into account both countries' positions and um, move forward on something that really is beneficial for mankind as a whole, as opposed to, you know, staying locked in one position. But that doesn't stop others from criticising New Zealand's actions. Professor Karen Scott says only one country caused the protection plan to fail. It's no secret that New Zealand made quite a strategic error um, in not being able to come to an agreement uh, with the United States in connection with producing a, a joint proposal. Um, there are a number of states within Canada that are quite sceptical um, about whether marine protected areas are an appropriate um, management tool within the Canada context. And if you've got two strong proponents of an MPA, that proponents which cannot agree on the particular parameters, then I think that inevitably meant that a deal was, was never going to be possible uh, back in November. So that was quite a missed opportunity. Much of it is protected, but some of it isn't, including some of the most productive bits. There's a section of the, the shelf and slope of the, the Rossi region. This is the bit between the, the sort of the shallower water and the very deep ocean which sort of sticks out like someone was sticking out their tongue. That is a really productive part of the ecosystem and is an area that we would like to be protected. It won't be under this proposal. A little bit to the south of it is another area which has been disputed between New Zealand and the US because New Zealand wants to fish it and the US wants to protect it. Jeff Key is the New Zealand political advisor at the Antarctic Ocean Alliance, the umbrella organisation for environmental groups. He was at the failed talks last year and said New Zealand's motives for the protection were questioned. Some countries do worry that, um, that maybe that this is a, a territorial grab or, or in some ways about enhancing the, the status of the countries that are putting forward the proposals. And that's where countries like New Zealand need to reach out 
to countries like China and Russia and Ukraine and say, well, you know, this is not about that. This is about protecting a place that is really special and deserves protection on its own merit. Russia, China and Ukraine, who all blocked the deal, say they did so because they weren't properly consulted by either New Zealand or the United States. Stuart Pryor, the New Zealand ambassador to Moscow between 2003 and 2006, says the governments will have to work hard to get Russia back on board. So I think there were issues that uh, needed to be discussed far more seriously uh, than uh, were discussed. I think uh, you know, my soundings of the Russian side is that they're perfectly ready to listen uh, to um, new arguments um, but they're not prepared to take as a fait accompli. And, and I, I suspect they will not be prepared to accept a joint uh, US-New Zealand proposal until and unless they have been uh, seriously involved in its development and the scientific justification for it. The Foreign Affairs Minister, Murray McCulley, doesn't accept that New Zealand's actions led to the deal failing. But he says the government is working with member countries to ensure the agreement gets backing when the countries meet again for talks in July. It's fair to say that we are looking to do everything we need to do to help this thing get across the line. Well, some of it's going to be simply diplomatic activity. Some of it's going to be elevating uh, the issue with... Uh, leaders and foreign ministers uh, um, relevant countries. Decision-making uh, varies from country to country. And we've just got to look at each of these issues that are raised and how the decision-making process is going to work and work out the best way to, to get a yes. Getting a deal will be key for the government. That's because it believes suggesting policy ideas to treaty countries each year, like the Ross Sea Protection Plan, will keep New Zealand in a prominent position and hopefully gain respect from other key players. And that, teamed with having a presence on all the key decision-making boards, will, it hopes, ensure New Zealand's influence in Antarctica continues. Stuart Pryor, who was also the head of the Antarctic Policy Unit at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for four years in the 1990s, says it's going to take a lot more than that. I think we have fallen away uh, from the high standards which we, uh, we set in the past. I think we have to lift our game. We, we need to pause. We need to uh, see what is happening in, in, uh, with respect to the polar regions. And then we have to recognise collectively, as New Zealand incorporated, that uh, we have to get our act together. We have to bring together the science, uh, the aspects, if you like, of virtual access to Antarctica and the Southern Ocean, uh, and I think we have to recognise that this is an area where New Zealand really can contribute uh, to world science, uh, to global understanding um, of our planet. In the past, I've described uh, Antarctica as New Zealand's potential space programme. And uh, I think it's a matter of recognising that there's a huge amount we can do in Antarctica, uh, which gives us a deserved place, or will give us a deserved place, uh, in, in the global science uh, world. So, will New Zealand be a player in Antarctica in the decades to come? Can this country compete? Can it influence others? And can it keep producing world-class science? Murray McCulley says the government will do all it can to ensure that answer is yes. 
I have simply made it clear that we're going to protect that, that budget. Uh, so while the ministry, wider ministry, has taken some cuts, um, I made it clear that we wouldn't touch the Antarctic Institute budget. Quite frankly, there was some scope to do that because they uh, have had a, a small surplus um, sitting there. I've managed to keep the marauding Treasury forces at bay, and uh, uh, I think I can say that as we need to expand our work going forward, we'll do so. I'm Olivia Wicks, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Jeremy Veal.